You know, this morning as we were singing, I just had to kind of stand there. And I was looking up at this cross here. And I don't know why it struck me kind of fresh this morning, but you know how sometimes we're surrounded by symbols. We see symbols all the time. And sometimes when we're seeing symbols all the time, they kind of almost lose their impact and lose their meaning. But it just struck me this morning as we were singing that second song where it says, it is done, it is finished, no more debt I owe. As I was looking at that cross, I was like, we see crosses all the time, but do we actually see them as instruments of death? Or is it just another Christian symbol that we see and we kind of gloss over? And I was just really challenged this morning as we were singing, everything that we do here this morning, from the kids' ministry to just shaking each other's hands um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, everything that we do is because of what he did on the cross. And so this morning, as we worship, I would like you to keep that in mind, um, just the, the seriousness of what transpired on that instrument. Father, this morning we just thank you for another beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together here as brothers and sisters. Father, I just ask that as we look into your word this morning, Father, that you would give clarity where I'm not clear, that you would give inspiration where I'm uninspired, Father. This is your word. This is your text. Would you take it and do with it what you will, Father? I just ask this morning that you'd help each and every one of us to be willing to be shaped and molded by your word, Father. We thank you for what you've done for us. Just ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. If you would, uh, please turn with me to Romans chapter 13. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. And I know we've been working our way through Romans slowly but surely. But each and every passage, each new thing that we learn has really uh, inspired me. And I have to say up front that I was truly convicted as I was studying this passage. Once again, Romans 13, 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except love each other. I'm getting some feedback here. Seems a little hot. All right, let's try that again. That's better. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not, commit, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
Father, this morning, we thank you for this word. We ask that you'd bless it and that you'd give return from it. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, um, as we've been working our way through the book of Romans, we've hit quite a number of topics. We've hit various sections that address specific topics. Uh, Sometimes these are very short and concise. Other times they tend to drag on a little bit. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, I believe, is said is the king of the run-on sentence. And it seems like he's also at times the king of the uh, run-on chapter. Um, But the the portion... uh, what happens at times when we're covering a, a large swath of Scripture in small sections week by week is it, it allows us to really get in deep and see the details. But at times, with week after week separating what we've heard before, it can be very easy to kind of lose the big picture. That's one thing that I've noticed. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul kind of switched from the mystery of Israel's salvation to how we as followers of Christ should live our lives. Uh, Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12 through verse 20, he gives some marks of a true Christian. It's a section that's very compacted, but now in the following passages, he zooms in a bit tighter on some of those particular areas of the Christian life. And he gives some additional details. In verse 9 of chapter 12, we see a very clear and concise summary of what we are going to cover in today's text. And it goes like this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. If we could summarize today's text, that would probably be a very good summary for it. But these marks of a true Christian serve as indicators of our sanctification process. They don't save us, but they certainly do reveal whether or not we are living our lives as Christ wants us to, and if he truly is Lord of our life as we claim. And in today's text, there are several actions that we're going to see. We're not necessarily going to focus on each of the actions But we're going to look at four of them specifically, and they are as follows. Love each other, wake from sleep, throw off dark works, and put on armor. All four of these items are connected to each other and are actions that we take. They don't happen passively, but are intentional actions on our part. In last week's text, the Apostle Paul And first of all, I know we all loved last week's text. It's our favorite uh, text, especially over the last three or four years. Um, But in last week's text, the Apostle Paul instructed us to submit to authority and to pay what we owe to the one that it is due. And one result that we saw if we failed to do this duty is a hardening of our conscience and even possibly to cause God's wrath to come upon us. After all, God is the ultimate authority behind our earthly authorities. He is the one that has instituted governments to be over us. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So if we're upset with how things are going in our government, we better stop and read that verse because it's not out of God's control. So no matter how much we disagree with the authorities who are over us at times, 
as long as their rule is not causing us to disobey God's commandments, then we are to respect them since the one behind their authority is the greatest authority of all. These governments and authorities that we are subject to have established laws and guidelines that help our societies to function with civility and order for the most part. And when that order is broken, typically it's dealt with very quickly. And I'm sure most of us strive to be upright, law-abiding citizens. But even in the best of our abilities, we are bound to break laws at times, often without intending to do so, but occasionally, I'm sure, it's done with our complete and total awareness. I know I have. And I dare wager that a good many of us broke the law this morning. Uh, how many of us exceeded the speed limit by just one mile an hour this morning? How many of us rolled through a stop sign instead of waiting for the front end of that car to come up, indicating we've come to a complete stop? I know I did. We left our house late this morning. I went much more than one mile per hour over the speed limit. I hope there's no, no one listening that can get me in trouble for that, but they have no evidence other than my testimony. Oftentimes, we view these infractions as small things. And I tend to do both of those things too often. We all know it's not speeding if it's only five miles per hour over the limit. If it says 55, that means we go 60. And on the interstate, anything up to eight miles per hour over is common and like, likely won't get you in trouble. However, even with these common infractions that we make while taking our daily commute to and from work or running errands, that one mile per hour over the speed limit is breaking the law. That almost stop is not a true stop. It's breaking the law. And following that slow car ahead of you just a little too closely, hoping that you can encourage them to move along at a bit of a faster pace, well, that's called failing to provide assured clear distance and uh, depending on who sees it, could also be considered borderline road rage. I don't encourage you to do that. Each one of these actions is breaking the law, and they could result in outcomes that we don't want to deal with. It could result in fines, suspensions, jail time. Even more, it could cause injury and death. But these rules have been established to bring order. They bring order to our commutes, and if, we, if, we're, if they were removed we'd face all kinds of chaos. Could you imagine if the colors of a stoplight were completely subjective? Whoever's at that light can choose what any particular color means. There would be no order. There would be no function. It would be total chaos. We wouldn't be able to function. So those rules are important, and for the most part, we abide by these rules, but inevitably, we will be wrong somewhere. Because even with the greatest intentions, there are so many rules that there are times that we simply willingly or unwillingly end up breaking one. But in today's text, we're shifting our focus from our relationship with the rules, the regulations of government, and we're shifting our focus more on a relationship with those around us. To our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our neighbors. 
But the reason I'm talking so much about law and rule this morning from last week's text is because we will see in today's text that there's another set of laws or a law that must be fulfilled. But this law is not instituted by earthly governments, but by the very God of the universe, the one who breathed everything into existence. And for generations, God's people tried to keep the law, including all the laws that were added by man later on, but they failed again and again, not due to a lack of desire, but because we live in a fallen world and we have sinful flesh. Rebellion against the law is our default setting from the moment we are born. But as Christians, it should be our desire to obey and to keep the law of God and to do so better and better each and every day as we grow in our walk with God and in the sanctification process. Now, we all know, I'm sure, that we will not be able to fully fulfill that law. We won't be able to keep God's law perfectly. But the good news is that's not what Paul is asking us to do this morning. He's asked us to do this. That's to love each other. Let's read. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Excuse me. So this is the first of those four actions, excuse me, that I'd like to look at this morning. And that is to love each other. In the first part there, when Paul says, owe no one anything, he isn't saying that we shouldn't borrow money. I don't want to step on any toes here, but he's not Dave Ramsey. So he's not telling you not to borrow money. No, the, the previous part of the chapter clearly talks about us paying what we owe. Scripture has a lot also to say about someone, how someone is to lend money in that relationship between the, the lender and the borrower. So if there are rules for lending out money, um, it goes to reason that there's nothing wrong with borrowing money. But borrowing beyond our means is another thing altogether. We shouldn't do that. But here when he's speaking of owing only love, this is the idea of a debt that we cannot repay, the debt of love. And this isn't because, brothers and sisters, it isn't because you or I or anyone around us has done so much for us that we owe them uh, like a debt of love that we cannot repay. No, that's not, that's not what it is. No, we are to love those around us because God is love. As it says in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Not only that, his love was exemplified through the life, work, and death of Christ. He kept the law perfectly, and by doing so, he fulfilled the law once and for all, that those of us who have believed on him can live free from its demands. As Jesus said 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There is no greater work of love, and the love that has been given to us is far more than we can ever give in a thousand lifetimes. That debt of love that we owe because of what Christ has done for us is one that we can never repay, but we should always be looking to pay it back to those around us. So no, we're not called to fulfill the law by focusing on each and every commandment. We are called to love. And by doing so, we will be fulfilling it to a greater degree than if we simply try to keep X, Y, and Z. And no, I did not intend for that to rhyme. That was just a happy coincidence. Uh, One other thing that I'd like to point out here, this isn't in my notes, but it kind of occurred to me that I should address this. Showing love to those around us is not agreeing with everything they do. It is not supporting someone in sin, and it is not embracing anything that goes against Scripture. In fact, it is unloving if we respond in that way. We can see how this fulfilling of the law through love works by looking at verse 9. If we love our neighbor, we won't be committing adultery with their wife or husband. If we love our neighbor, we will not take their life. If we love our neighbor, we won't steal their possessions. If we love our neighbor, we won't covet what they have. And as the apostle goes on to say, that all other commandments are summed up by this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There, quoting directly from Jesus' conversation with the scribes in Mark 12, But love is not just about the omission of bad actions. That's the bare minimum. Jesus also said said in the Sermon on the Mount that the law itself is the bare minimum. He added extra emphasis on each of the commandments by going directly to the thoughts, actions, and intentions behind them. Love goes beyond doing the bare minimum of not acting on fleshly impulses. It requires action. Now, this is going to date me just a little bit. Uh, There's a line in an old song from DC Talk. Anyone here ever listened to DC Talk back in the day? We got a couple hands. Okay, good. Um, Despite the basic and corny early 90s Christian rap styling of their lyrics... This song has stuck to me ever since I was young. And I think of the message behind the lyrics actually quite frequently. And don't worry, I'm not going to try to rap them. Um, uh, But I thought about asking Anthony to come up and rap it, but I'll let him go on that. But this is how the lyrics go. Pulling out my big black book, because when I need a word defined, that's where I look. So I moved to the L's quick, fast, in a hurry, threw out my specs, because my vision was blurry. I looked again, but to my dismay, it was black and white, no room for gray. You see, a big V stood beyond the word, and yo, that's when it hit me, love is a verb. And yes, they did spell love, L-U-V. It was the 90s, after all. And ah, the 90s, what a cultural and fashion wasteland. I hope it's never repeated. 
But the message of that song is so true. Love is a verb. It's an action word. And so what does that mean? Well, the opposite of adultery would be to love your husband or your wife. The opposite of murder would be to defend life. The opposite of stealing would be to be generous. The opposite of coveting would be to rejoice with your neighbor for what they have. Do you see the difference? Love requires action. And Paul finishes out this section by saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Brothers and sisters, I dare say we all love ourselves a great deal. This is very evident when you look at the culture today. Social media is filled with selfies, and I've taken my fair share of them, I'm not going to lie. I don't have a selfie stick, by the way, but I have taken selfies. Social media is filled with selfies and people celebrating their bodies, their success, their money, their fame. All of it is so self-focused, and it grows more and more so day by day. We indulge in personal comforts. We don't like to be out of our comfort zone. This is a result of our love for self. And we see great movements of self-love where people are told they are not just the first thing that matters. They're not just the second thing that matters. They're not just the third thing that matters. But they are the only thing that matters at the expense of all others. The movement to only have relationships that benefit me and to cut out all relationships that don't serve me is growing. I even saw one account where a woman left her long-term fiancé after he was diagnosed with cancer. He was the love of her life, she said. But his cancer diagnosis and the process of dealing with it, and he wasn't terminal, but she realized that this was going to change her dream life that she had envisioned with him. And so he could no longer fit every little part of what she wanted, so she left him. And as she described, she left him because of how much she loved him. <laughs> I think she left him because of how much she loved herself. This mentality has also worked its way into the church. From the pulpit, podcasts, books, songs, conferences, promoting the love of self. And at the same time, the number of resources that call us to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters, well, that is shrinking. It's going stale. It's what fills the, the clearance section of bookstores because it's not what we want. And the reason I say all this is it's very easy to love ourselves. It's not always easy to love our neighbor. It's not always easy to love those around us. And it's especially difficult to love them the way that we love ourselves. But that's what he asks us to do. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, if we are growing in our walk with him, we will be marked by love for our neighbors. And that doesn't just mean the people living right beside you. Everyone's our neighbor. We, we all know that, I'm sure. But we'll be marked by that, by that love. This horizontal application of love, it has vertical implications. In other words, the way 
that we love our neighbors is a sure indicator of where our spiritual life and relationship with our Father is at. So on this first point of loving each other, I want to know, how are you doing in that regard? I know I'm not doing nearly as well as I should. I've been greatly convicted while studying this text. I know I fall short. Does your love for your neighbor cover the bare minimum? Or is it active, going beyond the omission of hateful acts and becoming active? Overflowing from an abundance of what Christ has done for us on that cross. If our love is growing in this way, it's a sure indicator of where our hearts are. And it should be a sure indicator that we are growing in maturity as believers and in sanctification. As we go on into this next section, the Apostle Paul switches things up a bit and he casts some pretty dramatic word pictures. And we see the first of these word pictures in our section action point, which is to wake up, to wake from sleep. It says in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now this point of action, it's a bit different than the others. We don't choose to wake up. We wake up as the result of something intervening in our sleep cycle. The original and the most natural intervening factor in our sleep is light. When morning comes, it wakes us up. We were meant to wake up as light increased in the morning. That's natural. But as we all know, we now have, well, I guess originally, the original alarm clock, they had roosters. And now we've got alarm clocks here where uh, if you do what I do, where I hit snooze a lot of times, if you look in my camera roll, there's a lot of screenshots of the front of my phone. That's from me grabbing and clicking snooze. (laughs) My wife knows all about that. Um, But as we know, when our alarm goes off, we have a choice. We have a choice to wake up or hit snooze and keep on sleeping. I like to hit snooze. I shouldn't, but I do. But just as the light of the morning interrupts our sleep and wakes us up without us choosing it, the same way the Spirit has awakened us spiritually to new life in Christ, So while it happens passively at first, it also requires our response. Therefore, I've included it as an action. This exhortation for Paul is meant to cause urgency. Wake up! This is a call to be engaged, to no longer be passive, to not be lulled to sleep by the world. No, Christian, you who were once dead in your sins and trespasses no longer have those blinders on. You should no longer be asleep. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, it means that you've come to the realization of your own sinfulness, and you should no longer be asleep. It's a call to live our Christian lives intentionally and alertly. He says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, does this mean that we weren't saved when we accepted Christ? No, that's not what it says. No, the moment that we trusted Jesus as our Savior, 
our sins, past, present, and future, were exchanged for his righteousness as a result of him fulfilling the law on our behalf, as we talked about earlier. Yes, you are saved, but the full realization of our salvation will not happen until that day when we stand before the judgment throne. In that moment when God looks at us, but sees instead Jesus, in that moment when we are declared justified due to Christ's work, in that moment, that is when our salvation will be complete. That is when the ultimate destiny that we had set for us will no longer be our destiny, but a better one is. We will be saved from that. We will be saved from the punishment we are due. That's what he's talking about. That moment is coming. But in the intervening time, the knowledge of that time drawing closer It should cause us to wake up, to be engaged in the fight, spreading the good news of Christ. The knowledge that with each passing day you are closer to that moment, does does it affect you? Does it affect the way that you're living now? Does it promote urgency? Does it promote action in your life? To proclaim the gospel, to be a light to those around you, to become more like Christ each day, to grow in your sanctification if it doesn't have that effect on your life, then, brother and sisters, you're likely still asleep. Let's wake up. Let's look forward with great anticipation to that moment when our salvation is complete and fully realized. When we get to be with our Savior forever. And let's allow that knowledge to drive our actions today, tomorrow, and until that moment. That leads us into actions number three and four. Um, they're, they're found in the second part of verse 12. So I'm, I'm sorry. They're found in the first part of verse 12. So I'd like to read that, and I'm going to kind of split out the two different ones. There's kind of a few verses here where some things kind of intertwine, so I'm going to try to weave my way through that a little bit. But verse 12 says, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The third action that we see in today's text is casting off dark works. I love the visual that Paul paints here. Imagine someone with a dark and dirty cloak around them. With a swift motion, they fling out their arms, casting it off and letting it drop to the floor. This is the way that we should shed the old works and the old lifestyle that we once lived the lifestyle that we once walked in before we were regenerated. We saw some examples of those dark works in in those previous verses, but in the first chapter of Romans, we see even more. Chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are fully of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And furthermore, Ephesians 5, 3 through 4 says, but sexual immorality, all impurity, or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be, be thanksgiving. Shedding those works of darkness is something that should be taken quite seriously in the life of each and every believer. And it is another sure marker of maturity and the progression of our sanctification. Now imagine with, you, with me, if you will, that you set out to go on a several-week hike. You wanted to pack light, so you didn't take any soap. You didn't take any change of clothes. And on the hike, you don't have any time to shower or bathe in any way. When you complete that hike and get back to your home, you are not going to smell good. You're not going to look good. You're going to be a filthy, stinking mess of a person. And everyone that you come in contact to, contact with, is going to be revolted by you and the cloud that follows you <clears throat> or surrounds you. I have to think of uh, Pigpen from the Charlie Brown. Uh, didn't he always have like this cloud following him? Yeah. So in order to be presentable after this hike, you throw off those filthy clothes. You take a good hot shower, but then before going back out to your family, you put those very same clothes back on. That shower was of no value. Yes, you may be clean under the clothes for a time, but you will not be able to have them on for any length of time without them having an impact on you, and a bad one. And despite the shower, your family is certainly not going to want to be around you. Likewise, brothers and sisters, how can you be cleansed from your old life and bring those same works, those same clothes, that same cloak with you? You can't. Endeavoring to remove sinful ways goes hand in hand with our new reality. It brings glory to our Father, brings a greater joy to our lives. It makes our fellowship with our brothers and sisters around us a much more pleasant experience. And that brings us to the fourth action, putting on the armor of light. Anytime that you remove your old cloak, it makes room for you to put something else on. And I'm sure you've all heard the saying that when you remove one habit, it'll be replaced by another. That's true. You remove something bad, replace it with something good. When you stop drinking Pepsi, replace it with Coke. <laughs> you remove the old cloak. Now it's time to armor up. And I want you to take note of the choice of words here. A cloak, by its definition, it covers and it hides. It's for the one who slinks through the shadows. That is what we removed. Now you put on a suit of action. Putting on armor is a sure indicator that battle is on its way. It's a sure indicator that you are prepared to engage. You are properly outfitted to perform. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17 gives us a good idea of what this armor is. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces 
of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When I think of armored and ready for battle, I have to think of a knight. You know, one well-trained and armored knight could engage in battle, in an outnumbered battle against regular infantry that did not have armor of the same type. It didn't happen often. Typically, knights fought one-on-one. But for the sake of this, let's imagine a knight with a nice old suit of armor and just mowing down all the peasants. Um, They were put in positions to defend large swaths of territory, so their armor was hugely valuable. But brothers and sisters, if we're properly armored and equipped for battle, we will be able to engage with much greater effectiveness. But it's not just as magical as putting on a bright, shiny suit of metal. Along with putting on the armor comes a need to train with the weapons of our warfare. Each of those pieces that we see from Ephesians requires practice, they require diligence, and they require commitment. But even a poorly armored Christian is still in a greater position of power than the enemy we face. Because even if some of those pieces are not up to the level that we want them to be, if we're not properly putting on one of those pieces, the God, it's God that ultimately wins our battles. So if you're not where you like to be in your maturity or your sanctification journey, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. It is a process. Don't let that stop you from engaging in the battle. Get in the fight. I have to think of David when he faced Goliath. He was given armor, but that armor didn't fit him. It would have been a hindrance. He went out against an enemy that was well-armored. He went out without armor himself. And according to conventional wisdom, he should have been smoked, just to put it bluntly. But he had God on his side. It's not a fair fight. This fight is in our favor. We should not fight with our own strength, but with God on our side. So armor up, even if it means that you need to be more diligent in polishing, strengthening, and training that suit of armor. Get in the fight. Worship team, you can come up. Uh, In closing, I'd like to look at the last couple verses here, uh, just briefly. Verse 13 says, Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. In everything that we covered today, these two verses summarize what we are called to do pretty clearly. When in darkness we stumble around, we don't have a clear path, and all manner of sinful activity is carried out in darkness. Because like that old cloak of dark works, Darkness or night hides the acts that we shouldn't do. There is a reason why sin loves the dark. However, as Christians, now that the light of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts, 
We should walk as in the daytime. This means that our conduct should be open. We shouldn't be living in a way that causes us causes us to try and slink from shadow to shadow. No, we should conduct ourselves with integrity, with love, and with the type of character that we are not ashamed to reveal. Look at what it says is associated with darkness. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Those are pretty bad, right? Amen? (laughs) But what about the other two he put in there? Quarreling? Jealousy? Why is he putting those right alongside orgies and sexual immorality? It's just a little argument. It's just a little jealousy. Brothers and sisters, all works of darkness come from the same source. They all have the same effect. We need to put those away and walk in the light. And in verse 14, the Apostle Paul shows us exactly how we can walk in the light and put off the works of darkness. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ means that we daily choose to follow Him. We daily seek to be more like Him. We study His ways. We are open to the leading and the prompting of the Spirit. You know, on a chilly morning like this morning, when you went outside, I'm sure you made sure to put on a jacket or a coat. In the same way each day, we should be putting on the attributes of Christ to the best extent that we can. We should continue to grow in them. And as you see in the second half of that verse, the result is that we will not be making provisions for the flesh so that we no longer have to carry that cloak of darkness. The fleshly desires no longer need to be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, the process of maturity that marks a Christian and the process of sanctification is not a passive process. It requires actions. We looked at four of those actions today, and as we strive to be more like Christ daily, let's remember to actively love, to wake up to the time that we are in, to cast off the old works, and to put on the armor of Christ. This is how we grow more and more into the image of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We thank you just so much for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for just the the many blessings that you've given us, the opportunity to live free from the requirements of the law because of your fulfilling it, Father. I just ask, Father, that you'd help us to be engaged, that you'd give us hearts of action, that we would love those around us. Father, that we love them as we love ourselves. Father, I just ask that as we go from here, that this church we might grow in our love for each other, that we might grow in our love for our neighbors, and that we might be a light to the world around us in this dark time. Just ask these things in your name.